this biblical theology talk, but Jesus is uniquely the Son, right? But in the Old Testament, there are also all kinds of references. Well, 15, that's not all kinds, but several. Let's go with several. To God is the Father of Israel, and God is the Father of certain individuals. But there are also biblical references to people that God is not the Father of. In fact, God himself got in an argument about it, and we're going to read it now from John chapter 8. We're diving in. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Jesus is arguing with some Pharisees and some other Jews who are around. And they are in a heated debate, as they often got in. And he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your Father. So right away, we smell something's up. Jesus is setting something up. He's saying, I'm doing what I got from my father, and you're doing what you got from your father. They can't be the same father. This is going to play out in a minute. Abraham is our father, they, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. He's linking sonship with doing what the father does, you'll notice. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Now this is a bold claim, because as I said in the Old Testament, it was rare for father language to be used of God. It wasn't all over like it is in the New Testament. So they're really irked, man. They're miffed. Man, like Jesus, we don't know who you think you are. We're Abraham's children, and God is our father. And then Jesus says this. If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Ouch. You know, they didn't kill him for being a nice guy, by the way. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Now, there's some interesting things going on here. Jesus is linking being a son with doing what the Father does, thinking what the Father thinks, saying what the Father says, and living in accordance with the Father's will. And he's calling them out for not doing that. They're actually quite insulting. Think about it. The history of Israel up to that time has been God being a father to them, and them being absolutely rebellious and absolutely insulting for generations. If they are his son, they are the worst son ever. I mean, this is not an insult to Jews or anything. This is just like reading history. It's like they're faithful for a while, then they leave, then they cozy up to God, they get blessed, and then they rebel, and then they war, and they want God, and then they rebel. I mean, it's back and forth and back and forth. And now the very people who have rebelled against God are telling God, we're God's children. And God in the flesh is standing before them saying, you guys are making a terrible mistake. You guys are actually taking your cues from someone that you don't even realize is your father. Let me point it out for you, and it's, it doesn't go over so well. You know, Jesus does meet his end for a reason. He is honest, and he says some things that are yucky. So we have to come to the conclusion that while God is the Father in the sense that he created everything, he is not everyone's Father in the same way. Whose Father is he in the deep, intimate, adoption-like sense, where you are welcomed into the home as a son and given an inheritance? All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Romans 8, 14. 
When you have the spirit of the Son, you become a son. We could preach many sermons just on this. I apologize I can't go deep on everything. See me later if you have questions, quandaries, disagreements, nasty comments. Those those here, please. Or be an email at anthonyandnewdaycommunity.org. But the people who have the Spirit of God and are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So when people like to say, well, we're all God's children, you know, oh, blah, 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 that's not exactly true. That's kind of glossing over something deeper. You know, Jesus made a point of saying, not everyone is my, is my son, and not everyone treats me like a father, for sure. All right, next point. This one's a little lighter, because that one seemed heavy. So it's time for me. <laughs> yes. The father isn't like your dad. For some of us, that's good news, maybe many of us. And I'm going to demonstrate this point <clears throat> with an illusion from the, the Wizard of Oz. Now, I'm using this meme from the video version of the Wizard of Oz, and I'm looking at the Emerald City, and they're jumping up and down because they can see it. But I have to tell you, I have read the book. I think the guy's name is Baum, Frank Baum, right? Now, I got the book from the library the day before I would get terribly sick with a 103.9 degree fever and be delirious, and I had nothing to do but sit in my house under a bunch of blankets, sweating and chill, and read The Wizard of Oz, which was totally <laughs> tricky, I gotta tell you. It was one of the weirder experiences of my life. But I discovered that the book is much different than the movie. And in the book, they have a much different experience at the Emerald City. I'd like to read the passage from you. I think this is the end of chapter 9. I am the guardian of the gates. They meet this strange man. And since you demand to see the great Oz, I must take you to his palace. But first you must put on the spectacles. Why? asked Dorothy. Because, says the gatekeeper, if you did not wear the spectacles, the brightness and glory of the Emerald City would blind you. Even those who live in the city must wear spectacles night and day. They are all locked on, for Oz so ordered it when the city was first built. And I have the only key, the gatekeeper, that will unlock them. He opened the big box, and Dorothy saw that in it was filled, it was filled with spectacles, and all of them had green glasses in them. When they walk in the city, at the beginning of the next chapter, what do you think they find? The streets were lined with beautiful houses, all built of green marble, and studded everywhere with sparkling emeralds. They walked over a pavement of the same green marble, and where the blocks were joined together were rows of emeralds, set closely and glittering in the brightness of the sun. The window panes were of green glass, and the sky above the city had a green tint, and the rays of the sun were green. So, seriously, they didn't pick up on what was going down. Like, you get green glasses, you walk in, you think everything's made of emeralds? Hello? Like, something's not seeming funny here? This is not right. But, of course, they don't get it in the book that it's all a sham. Until they meet Oz and they find out that the whole thing's kind of put on and, you know, it's, it's all a deception. And they find out, to be frank, that things are not nearly as glorious as they thought. In fact, they're kind of pathetic. And Oz is just lost. You know? But I want to say something. Our fathers, when we start thinking of Father God, are like locked-on spectacles. And I don't know how we can avoid seeing God through those lenses. Mm -hmm. If you had a super horrible father that was absolutely wretched and abusive and gross and nasty, you know, how do you avoid not tinting God that way? Right. And if you had a father who just bought you a ton of stuff and was super generous, how do you avoid not seeing God that way? 
we have to be careful. We can't let our perceptions of Father God define Father God. But this is actually good because God, as the song says, is a good, good Father. None of our fathers were as perfect as Him. So the odds are about 100% that God is much better than you think. And when the spectacles come off, we will have the opposite reaction that Dorothy and her friends had. And it will be much more glorious than we thought and much more wonderful. But we have to be wary of this. We have to be careful that we don't let our past experiences define what it means that God is a father. The father defines himself. We have to let the father define himself. Why? Remember David Guzik said, God is this mighty sovereign that creates, controls, he doesn't say controls, creates, that's the wrong word, he creates, he governs, and he'll judge, and he's a father. We have to let the whole scripture Sorry about that. We have to let the whole scripture define God. Otherwise, we might pick and choose attributes. What happens if you pick and choose attributes of God, leave some out, maybe accentuate others? You're misrepresenting God's character. And you've actually created a sort of mental idol that you call Father God that does not have the attributes of God. We have to be careful that we don't do this. Our, our ideas of God have to be accurate. The fact that God is our Father does not mean that we get to superimpose everything we consider good fathering, quote-unquote, on God and assume it's right. And the only way, and I'm sorry to say it, that we can get a fully-orbed picture of what it means that God is our Father is to look at the Bible. And I mean the whole thing. The whole thing. Dig into the narrative. This Bible is actually open to 2 Kings. I'm a nerd and I looked. <laughs> when was the last time anybody dove into 2 Kings and was like, oh, I'd like to learn some things about the character of God from these historical books. I actually love doing that. You know, I had to get out of the habit of preaching from the Old Testament for like months. But the whole thing. I've, I've kind of, I've, I've cheated for us today. On the next slide is a verse that's kind of the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It encapsulates God's character in two verses. But I really can't encourage you guys enough to get into your Bible to get an accurate picture of God's character. But here we go. This is a great snapshot of who God is. I've preached it several times before. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The setup, God is going to pass in front of Moses, and he's going to describe himself to Moses. So this is like God himself saying what God is all about. So I think that's reliable, amen? Amen. amen. Here we go. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations. I added generations in brackets because many translations put it in there. That is the thrust. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth Generation Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's all good, isn't it, until we get to the word punishes? <laughs> it sounds great. I'm all on board with loving and compassionate and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin because I've been myself for almost 37 years now, and I've had some of that, and I'm glad it's forgiven, right? But I don't like the P word. I'm going to give you an easy way out, and then we're going to give you what I think is maybe... A, a better way out of that later. Is a way out sound good? Who wants a way out of punishment? I'll take a way out of that. Amen. 
So here's one way out. If you look up this word on Blue Letter Bible app. Thank you, Justin. Blue Letter Bible. <laughs> you will notice that there is an awfully huge range of meaning for this word. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean like vindictive penal punishment. Okay? There's all kinds of things. I had a professor explain that this could be the, nat the natural result of sin. Like, people lived communally back in the day. You usually had three or maybe four generations in a house. If one of them is a sinful monster, and he lives for three or four generations, he's going to be influencing that house for three or four generations. So it could mean that. Or it could have another nuance, and, and you can take that, and you can kind of escape the P word that way. But let me ask, what if it means punishes? What if it just means punishes? What if it means that God is in heaven and he says... That was evil what you did. I'm going to make sure that three generations of your children pay for that. And they're going to know that they're paying for it because of you. Can we, can we tell God, oh, you're so mean and you're not fair, when he has loving kindness and forgiveness for thousands of generations? You know what I mean? I'm not ready to impugn his character on that. But that's, that's beside the point, because later we're going to talk about a better way out of the punishment. But just saying, if it means punishes, we still have a very lopsided view of God that is absolutely lopsided towards grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and loving kindness. But for now, let's let the P word just hang. Okay? Let's look now at the New Testament. I'm going to... I can do this in 15 minutes, no problem. Maybe 20. Don't worry. Get comfy. It's not as hot as it's been in the last few weeks. We're going to look at the New Testament at the most popular passage, I think probably, that people go to, to talk about the Father Heart of God. And that is the prodigal son. We're going to look at this, and I want to look at the attributes of the Father. Okay? Now, this is actually Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. It's just a small part of it, and I've used it before, and I like it a lot. So let's look at just the snapshot of the prodigal son. After the son comes to his senses, you guys know the setup. He's the younger son, so he's already not really the favorite son. You know what I mean? And he goes up to his dad and says, hey, give me my money now. You can hear hundreds of preachings on this. That was a huge insult to the father. And then he takes the money, he goes to a foreign country, and wastes it on wild living, further insulting his family, further insulting his father, you know, just divorcing himself from his roots, apparently. And then he comes to himself when he's starving. And this is what he says. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Pause. That's right. That's right. If the father agrees to see him at all, this would be a statement that agrees with reality. Then he makes a request. Make me like one of your hired servants. He thinks maybe he'll have enough compassion on me not to let me be a son again because I know now for sure that I've ruined them and I have to agree with him. I'm way, way out of the realm of sonship. I've disqualified myself. But if I can be a servant, maybe he'll pity me enough to let me have a position where I can at least have enough to eat. You know? So he goes back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Filled with compassion for this nasty, belligerent, prodigal, insulting son. 
Amazing. Anyway, he's filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. What a spectacle. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. Shocking. The son said to his father exactly what he should say and exactly what is correct. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, right. But the father has no time for that. Because the father in this story represents the character of God himself. That doesn't even get a response. The father talks to his servants and says, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So much going on. He was lost and dead until he came back to the father. And the father was like, none of this servant stuff. You're being reinstituted as a son. All of the honor that you have, deserve it or not, it's on you. And we're going to party because you're back. Now, with all the things going on in that story, let's just simplify it a little bit. How would you describe the character of that father, that counterculturally forgiving, ridiculously humble father, the response to a nasty, wretched, rebellious, sinful, gross punk like that son the way he did? Well, I don't know about you, but I would say he was compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin, probably the kind of love that would be faithful for a thousand generations. This is the character of God right out of the Old Testament. It's the same. People talk about this dichotomy between the New Testament God and the Old Testament God. Situations change. Covenants change. But the character of God remains the same. And if you're saying, Anthony, the P word, it's been hanging over us the whole time. You didn't resolve that well. I don't like it. You didn't even have a a picture from your phone of the word and definition like uh, I, I don't like this what about the punishment thing that was in there that was in the description well you know this funny thing happened it's Jesus telling the parable Jesus is the gatekeeper Jesus is the only way to the father that he talked about so much he made the way for us by paying the price. You can see the scripture references on the slide. We could never pay. We could go to God and say, we are no longer worthy to be your son. We've sinned against heaven and against you. And God would say, you're right. Except he's not that kind of God. He's the kind of God that so wants even the people that might not be his children in this way to be children in this, in this way. He died for Pharisees. The people he's constantly arguing with and bickering with and saying, you guys have got it wrong 100%, he's dying for those people. They are the prodigals. They are the ones that he's trying to welcome home. Amen. Man, after the whole famous woe chapter in Matthew where he's just ripping into them, man, you don't even know how they're not just scorched piles of ash on the ground. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. The heart of the Father is always to gather. And he wants everyone to be his children. The P word doesn't hang over us because Jesus paid the punishment. Amen. We don't have to worry about that. Not because it disappeared, because it was dealt with. And this should fill us with a thankfulness 
for Jesus Christ the Son, because we then receive the Holy Spirit, which enables us to cry out to God as our Father. Amen. That's the way. So what are the Father's intentions for us? And this is what I'm going to close with. I hope that seemed as powerful to you as it did to me. There are no more barriers, no more obstacles between anybody, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, coming to God and being received as his child. You should expect the arms of the Father to be open. He's going to be all of these characteristics. Not just when you come back as a prodigal, but believe it, the whole time that you're his son. His character doesn't change. Situations change. In the Bible, the covenants occasionally change. The character of God does not change. Amen. But you know, when this guy was reinstituted as a son and not as a servant, something else was reinstituted that the servants wouldn't have to deal with really. And I'll tell you, that's fathering. Fathering is instituted when you become a son. Part of fathering is discipline. So we, we had the P word. Now we have the D word. <laughs> but I want to say a word about discipline. Why is the stereotypical discipline from a coach? Well, somebody just tell me, you do something wrong in, in sports ball practice, it almost doesn't matter what sports ball you're playing. Run and the coach laps. says, you got to run laps. Thank you. It's usually a mile. You're right. Why doesn't the coach say you owe me 25 bucks, right? It's a learning thing. It's not a punishment. It's discipline. Do we have any Naruto fans in the house? Amen. Amen. Who loves Guy Sensei? You. Guy Sensei Rockley. So Guy Sensei is a character where he's always disciplining himself. He makes these dumb bets. He's like, let's play rock, paper, scissors. If I lose, I have to do 500 laps around the village on my hands. It's like, why would you do that? He doesn't put anything on the other guy. It's just about him. And then he loses and he does 500 laps on his hands. Because he knows that even though that stinks, it's making him better. It's the difference between punishment and discipline. The Bible talks about the Father disciplining us like it's the best thing ever. Not the most fun thing ever. The Bible is an honest book, but the best. Let's look at this. This is out of Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews starts out with, Have you completely forgotten this word of, what's that? Encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? It goes on. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Let me pause right there. Christian life isn't always easy. Sometimes it's, it's tough to draw the line between why is this happening? Is this an attack of the enemy or is this just hardship? Is this discipline? What does that even mean? Good question. I'd have to research that. I didn't this week. 
I just want to say this. Sometimes hard things are in our life on purpose from God to discipline us to be better. But it's not punishment. The character of God does not change. Times change. Situations change. But you can always expect a father to be loving, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving, even as he disciplines. But that doesn't mean discipline is any fun. In fact, this verse ends with this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Amen. Hebrews 12, 5-11. Guys, I want to invite us today to think of God as a Father in as fully orbed a way as we possibly can. Not restricting His character to a few attributes that we think are fatherly or father-ish, but taking the whole Bible into account, God's unchanging character into account, and doing the best job we can to incorporating that into thinking him of that as our Father. All of His personality. Because it's true that He is the God. He is the Father who takes the prodigal son back who pays the punishment, who makes the way, who gives his spirit, who is loving, compassionate, kind, forgives all kinds of tomfoolishness that we would never forgive. But he also disciplines us because he wants us to be like him and he wants us to have righteousness and peace. Let's sign on for the whole thing. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you guys. Here's Justin Close. Okay.